think that um, Christians are um, all too easily put on the back foot these days. Christian faith is often the butt of jokes. It's often held to think a kind of, we can't possibly believe that stuff anymore. And sometimes it's even the case that um, what Bible teaches, what Christians believe, just is outlawed or sought to be outlawed. Um, just after the scandal affecting the um, Scottish Parliament's finance secretary, Derek Mackay, his replacement, Kate Forbes, had to do the budget speech. And even from within her own party, someone was referring to her as unsuitable because as a Christian, she held questionable views on human sexuality. Nothing to do with her ability to deliver a budget speech. Um, You can't possibly hold that today. Someone else had an agenda. And it's an agenda that too easily puts us on the back foot. Now, it's not the case that I think Christians should go around looking for a fight on this issue and that and saying, where can we, where can we stick the boot in? But um, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us we should always be ready to make, uh, give an account of what we believe and make a defense for what we believe. And part of that, I think, is, is pointing out where the alternative views fall down. We should do more, I think, to challenge the shortcomings and the inconsistencies of those who dismiss Christianity. So, for example, we have, we have some people who, day by day, and they would say this is their creed, they don't believe in anything beyond the material universe, but then you find them at the point of bereavement, saying all kinds of other things about someone being in a better place and looking after us and where do these ideas come from? You see, the creed that somebody has lived by in terms of just doing stuff here and now, making as much money as we can, or giving ourselves this, that, and the next thing, hits the buffers very often at that point of death. People don't follow through the implications of having ridiculed those who believe in a spiritual dimension. Now, Jesus was clear about the existence of spiritual forces, of demons and angels. It was not inevitable that he did so. You can't say, well, he did that because he lived back then. There were people in Jesus' time, for example, the Sadducees, who we find appearing from time to time in the the Gospels. The Sadducees did not believe in angels and demons. So it's not as if Jesus was just going along with what everybody said. But he did speak clearly about angels, about demons. And New Testament authors such as Paul and Peter and the writer to the Hebrews were also clear that there were spiritual forces. And Ephesians chapter 6 and the passage that Leslie read is one of a number of places where the apostle Paul is affirming that our world does not simply consist of what we can touch, smell, taste and feel and so on. Now, he does not, in verse 12, set out to satisfy our curiosity about um, spiritual powers in the uh, heavenly realms. His point is to make us aware that there is hostility. There are forces at work in life. There are influences and powers that go beyond the material. 
Now, one of the um, classic Christian books of the 20th century was C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, and it was a series of imagined letters from a senior devil to a a junior devil in which Lewis um, was unfolding some of the wiles and the tricks and the agenda of of the the devil who was trying to encourage his, his nephew to stop this guy becoming a Christian and remaining a Christian. And in the preface to the book, Lewis says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think for most folk in church today, it's the first of these that is our our error. I don't hear a an excessive and unhealthy interest very often, but much more is it the case that we just imagine that stuff like that doesn't matter or doesn't even exist. Too often we are oblivious to being caught up in a cosmic battle of good versus evil, of God versus Satan. For many of us, that perspective suits us. Who wants to be caught up in conflict? Who wants to live in a war zone? Many people in places like Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, Palestine would love to be living somewhere where there's no armed conflict going on. But they don't get the choice. And then the fact is that none of us get the choice about whether or not we live here on this planet. And the planet that we live on is a world gone wrong. It is a world created good by the Lord, but fallen through human sin, and a world where conflict between God and Satan continues, and they fight over human beings. So Jesus, just before his arrest, when Peter is once more trying to talk them out of what what he was about to do, Jesus said in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Satan's wanted to do this. He's wanted to muck it up, and I've had to pray for you, Simon, because it's a spiritual issue that's at stake here. It's a spiritual war that we're in. And we see that battle raging further on and just in that story in Jesus' struggle in Gethsemane. We'd seen it earlier in, in Jesus' sharp rebuke to Peter when the first time Jesus told the disciples that he was going to be crucified, Peter was saying, oh no, Jesus, that can't happen to you. We're not going to let that happen. I'm not going to allow it. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, why did he speak to Peter in those terms? This was the Peter who moments earlier had said to to Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And Jesus commended him and said, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. You see, a non-spiritual reality there is an insight. He's been led by the Spirit of God to that position. There's Peter just being commended by Jesus. And then when Peter moments later says to Jesus, no, no, not, not crucifixion, it's get behind me, Satan. Because there's a real temptation there, isn't there? There was a real temptation that Jesus keenly felt 
And we see that in Gethsemane as he toiled before going to the cross. There's a temptation, and Jesus was thinking, oh, and I don't fancy this. This is a bit much. This, really, this is not easy. Not just because he was fearing the pain of crucifixion, but because this was a spiritual battle going on. And when we follow Jesus, we are subject then to the pull and the temptations and the wiles of Satan. The Apostle Paul, when he was describing his conversion in in Acts chapter 26 and his commission to be an apostle, Jesus, he says, said to him that he was sent, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. Not just from darkness to light, which has come up already in Ephesians, but also from the power of Satan to God. It's a spiritual war going on. And that's why four times in this passage, in verses 11, 13, and 14, four times Paul has urged the Christians in Ephesus to stand. Because there's danger going on here. There's someone trying to trip you up. If there was no serious opposition trying to knock over God's people, then standing up for Jesus would be easy. We wouldn't have to be told, far less told four times in three verses. Paul, you see, wants to see Christians so deeply rooted in Jesus that they withstand opposition. He wants them not to be blown off course, who can remain Christians, who can remain faithful and fruitful. And the forces of evil that helped to crucify Jesus have been seriously wounded by the resurrection. And now with their backs to the wall, they will do whatever they can to upset Jesus' followers, to distract or to depress Christians, to trick them, to get them focusing on minor issues, to getting them to grab the wrong end of the stick, helping them to fall out with one another or fall into immoral living and so on and so on. And for a fuller description of them all, read Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. And the biggest and most successful ruse of all these gospel opponents is to have us believe that there is no war, that nothing much is at stake, that we can just go with the flow. There is no conflict in the heavenly places, no forces fighting to take us from Jesus. That's what they want us to believe. But throughout the New Testament, we are warned otherwise. Throughout the New Testament, we see the work of God being opposed. And we are told that followers of Jesus will always be under attack. Sometimes the attack is in full frontal form of the authorities persecuting Christians. We read it in the New Testament and it still goes on today. Sometimes it will take the more oblique form of persuading Christians to invest time and energy in side issues or become fascinated by distorted teaching. Sometimes it's simply the age-old temptations of money, sex, and power. And in each case, what we first must do is that we need to recognize that there is conflict, that we are tempted and put under attack. This is what Jesus says. This is what he taught. Now the second step, the first step being recognizing that there are spiritual uh, 
conflict all times. The second step that Paul gives is in verse 12, to put on the full armor of God. And again, notice, this is a deliberate act, a particular course of action. We read back in chapter 4 of the putting on and putting off. It's something that you specifically do. It doesn't just happen. Now, it's the Roman soldier that uh, Paul's uh, familiar with. It would be the Roman soldiers who were guarding him while he was in prison, while he was writing this letter to the Ephesians. So, they're probably folks, Romans, that he saw every day. And so, it's their... It's their uniform that he uses as the illustration for the points that he makes in these verses. Beginning verse 14 with the belt of truth. Meaning both the body of truth, that is the content of the Christian faith. Because we don't make the Christian faith up, it's revealed to us through, by God. It's that body of truth, but also putting that truth into practice and being truthful. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate being for protection. And he's saying that when we're under attack, when somebody's saying to you, you're not good enough, when somebody's saying to you, you're a lousy Christian, when somebody's saying to you, you can't possibly believe this, when somebody's saying you're not good enough, we have the righteousness that is given us by God because Jesus died and rose for us. The gospel of peace, he says, you're shod with Peace both with God and then with one another, which is what he'd been expounding in chapter 2 of the letter. He talks about the shield of faith, how when the attacks come that tempt us to doubt, to despair, how can we cope with things going badly or things that tempt us? When we are tempted by complacency or arrogance, it's the shield of faith that can protect. This is what I believe and this is what I trust This is who I know, and he is dependable. The helmet of salvation, knowing that we belong in the family of God, that we've been delivered and and rescued when we have come to Christ in faith. The Lord is not going to change his mind on that. Back in Ephesians 1, he talked about it as adoption, being brought into the family. God is not going to throw us out after we've been adopted. And that salvation gives protection, just like the helmet protected the head of the soldier. And then he mentions, lastly, the sword, which is the word of God, verse 17. Now, the sword, like all the others in this illustration, can be used defensively. Do you notice that about all the others? The breastplate, the shield, the helmet, and so on, they're they're essentially to defend and the sword, too, is, is used to defend, but also the sword is the one that can be useful in attack. It is the word, verse uh, 26 of chapter 5, it's the word that has cleansed us, the word which has brought to us the life of God and changed us. But it's also the gospel which is the power of God for salvation, as Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 1. Now, in using this illustration, Paul is not just inspired by, oh, there's a Roman soldier over there. What can I think of? You know, there's a helmet. I wonder what the helmet could be. There's a shield. I wonder what the shield could be. He's not just thinking of that. Paul has also got the Scriptures. Now, for him, the Scriptures are what we call the Old Testament. The New Testament still hasn't been written. 
And so Paul knows his Old Testament, and in particular in the, the book of Isaiah, in chapters 11, 49, 52, 59, and so on, the armor is referred to. So he's picking up something that Isaiah has used. And the passages in Isaiah are about the Messiah being clothed with righteousness and faithfulness, striking the earth with his words, with a mouth like a sharp sword, coming to announce the gospel of peace. And that is why Paul calls on us to be strong in the Lord, verse 10. He's saying because all these things are true of Jesus himself. All of these things are what Isaiah was was prophesying the Messiah would do, the Messiah would be like. And the Messiah has gone through that battle for us. The Messiah persevered through the hurt of Gethsemane. The Messiah persevered through the pain of crucifixion, even forgiving those who were crucifying him as, as he was being tortured on the cross. And the Messiah, three days later, rose from the dead, announcing that he had won, that he had overcome And so Paul says, that Messiah's done this, and that Messiah is giving us the benefits, the fruits of that salvation that he has won. So these things are true of Jesus, but given to those who are in Jesus, those who have trusted and and put their faith in him. So he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, nowhere... Is our effort more united with the Lord's? Nowhere is our dependence on Him more realized and expressed than in prayer. And it's prayer that the Apostle goes on to in verses 18 to 20. Having spoken of the conflict, the spiritual rulers, having said we can be strong, not because we are strong, but because Jesus has won a victory for us, Having said, verses 14 and following, that we have these different pieces of armor to put on, these different helps that Jesus has given, he says, underneath and around and above and through all of that, pray. Now, prayer remains mysterious, does it not, at one level? Nobody quite knows how it works, but it remains a deeply practical thing to do. Without God, we cannot, and without us, God will not. And in prayer, we align ourselves with God's purposes as opposed to trying to get him to see to ours. And here's the illustration of that in these verses, 18 to 20. Paul asks them to pray and pray for him, verse 19. And notice he doesn't Ask them to pray, verse 19, that he gets out of jail. He doesn't say, pray for me that I can get out of prison and then I can get back on doing the missionary tour stuff. He doesn't say that. Now, if you and I were in prison, what do you think our first thought would be? What would the first thing we'd be? We'd be saying, what about this? Especially if we're only there because we've been following Jesus, which was the case for Paul. He's, he's, not, he's not thinking, firstly, about himself and his own concerns. But he's saying he wants them to pray that he can continue to share the gospel without fear, no matter where he is. 
Now, he has shown twice in this letter, at the end of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 3, he's shown twice already in this letter that and how he prays for the church. He's praying that they might grow in Christ, that the work of God in them will grow and flourish, that their witness will be fruitful. Now, whether or not, when and for what we pray, will show how seriously we take Paul's words about conflict between God and the powers of evil. It will show how seriously we take Paul's words about the resources that God provides for his people. Now, there are there are folk here today, there are folk in this room who will admit to disappointment that their children were brought up going to Sunday school but now have no interest. I've heard it from some of you. Now, when our children were baptized, we promised by prayer an example to bring them up in Christ. Well, I don't mean did you pray for them when they were unwell or when they had an exam or whatever, although there's no reason not to pray about these things. But did you pray for them as Paul prayed for the Ephesians in chapter 1 or as Paul prayed for the Ephesian church in chapter 3? Did you pray that the promises of baptism would become reality through their coming to a personal faith and following Jesus. That's the issue. There's a war on. In all kinds of ways, Satan wants to trip up the cause of Christ to frustrate the gospel and frustrate people who might share the gospel. That's why Jesus, Luke 22, had to pray for Simon that Satan wouldn't get him. And if we believed that that kind of conflict was going on, and if we believed that we and our loved ones were caught up, caught up in it, would we not pray? Why is it so few gather for prayer before our service on a Sunday morning to ask God to be with us, among us, to bless us, to bring people to living faith? Do we not believe that God can? Do we not believe that there's a conflict as as here described? Do we really not believe that we need to put on the armor and to gather up our efforts in prayer? And it's serious. Look at all the alls in verse 18. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. It's not God bless mommy, God bless daddy and amen, is it? And then we wonder why the cause of Satan seems to come out on top. 
Prayer is a serious work. Now, surely Paul, by this time, and, and he's writing this, we think, towards the end of his, his um, life, when by this time, he, he has established himself, surely. His credentials are there as being an excellent preacher and leader in the church, hasn't it? He's, he's founded many churches by this point. It's all in his CV, and we would think, Paul, you're really good at this. And yet he's saying to them, Pray that whenever I speak, words may be given me so I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I might declare it fearlessly. I need help, he's saying. On a human level, we would simply look at it and say, Paul, you've done this time and time before. You, you, just scoosh Paul on you go. You know what to do. But he doesn't say that, does he? He's saying I need help because it's a spiritual work. Why would anyone then think that it's fine to try to follow Jesus in this conflict without putting on the armor? Would a hockey player leave their stick in the dressing room and assume that they can go onto the field and play a good game? Would a tennis player think that, well, today I'll do without the racket and still expect to win the game? So why might a church think that they can leave to the side all that the apostle sets out here and manage fine? Too often we haven't realized that there is a war on and we cannot escape it by wishful thinking just as physical conflict and warfare can't be evaded by the people in Yemen or wherever simply by closing their eyes and wishing they were somewhere else. We're caught up in a war and Satan and his cohorts know about it. And they will not stop because we might be caught unawares. They'll press on trying to trip us up. Even, even Roger Federer wouldn't win Wimbledon without a racket. He wouldn't get past the first round without a racket. We wouldn't expect him to play without using a racket. Even Paul, verse 19, could not survive as a Christian without the armor of God. Even Paul could not be sharing the gospel without his and the rest of the church praying for him. Let us pray with all the alls of verse 18. Let us pray with seriousness. And for those whose families have turned their back in the gospel, it's not too late to start. If you haven't prayed for them, As seriously as Paul talks in these verses, there's no point in beating yourself up about that. You might as well just start praying seriously now. Because there's a war on. Jesus says so. Paul says so. Even the devil knows that there's a war on. It's about time we caught up. Put the armor on. Let us pray.